If you've got your Bible or your phone and you've got a Bible app, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. <clears throat> so turn to 1 Peter. It's toward the end of the New Testament. And um, <clears throat> if you will turn there, that will be great. And, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we do, I, I want to give you a little background on, so over the next nine weeks, we're going to walk through the book of 1 Peter. So we're going to stay just in one book of the Bible for nine weeks. But i got to give you a little background, a little information on 1 Peter. Hey, Dodger, will you mind doing something for me? Um, a little thing of water would be amazing. I, um, I'm about to lose my voice, so y'all pray that, some of you are praying that I lose it, and some of you are praying that I keep it. Um, all right. So 1 Peter, who wrote the book of 1 Peter? Any guesses? Oh, you guys are really smart. See, we don't even need to do this series. No, so you're right. Peter wrote it, and he wrote it as a letter. We call it a book of the Bible, but it's actually a, a letter. Now, Peter was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was one of the, the closest followers of Jesus, one of Jesus's. Oh, you're the man. Thank you. Um, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. In fact, can you name three, the three disciples that were closest to Jesus? Anybody know? Peter, James, and John. Yeah, they were like the closest followers of Jesus. Peter was part of the inner circle. And, and the interesting thing is when Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and then ascended to heaven, there were about 120 followers around Jesus that gathered and saw Jesus ascend and kind of gathered together that day, about 120. Now, there were more probably outside of Jerusalem and more around, but there were 120 gathered that day, the Bible says. But within a couple of months, within about 50 days or so, that group grew from 120 in Jerusalem to over 3,000 people in Jerusalem just within a couple of months and growing more and more every day. Now, here's what happens when a group of people begin to, to grow like that, to have that many people in Jerusalem, it, it kind of was a threat to the Jewish authorities and to the Roman Empire. And so the emperors said, well, they're worshiping this king and their group is growing and it's getting out of hand. And so they began to kind of disperse or separate or punish or persecute and even kill Christians. And it grew more and more as the group got larger and larger. They were seen more and more as a threat. And over the first few years of Christianity, the first few years of followers of Jesus, if you look at history, what happened to early Christians? It was not good. Let's just say, if you've ever been to Rome and visited the Colosseum, what happened to Christians in that place was not a good thing. Emperors grew more and more frustrated with this growing movement, and they began to kill them in large numbers. And many early followers of Christ lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their possessions, lost their family members, and were forced to flee as refugees to countries surrounding, countries uh, scattered where they, they would be undetected and unnoticed. And so small groups of Christians began to pop up all over the Roman Empire and the known world at the time. And that's who Peter is writing to. He's writing to Christians who have been scattered because of persecution. And their lives are not easy. They're living as exiles or refugees, and they've lost a lot. Now, if you've got your little program and you want to take a couple of notes, or if you've got your phone and you want to jot some things down, I'm going to give you two big questions that we're going to deal with in this series. Two huge questions 
that we have and that the people Peter was writing to, they had these questions. And the first one is this. It's a me question. The first one is this. Why does God allow his children to suffer or struggle? Now, I guarantee you've had that question before. Like, why does God allow people, when they follow him, when they love Jesus, why does he allow them to suffer or struggle with life? Not just allow, but sometimes God invites or calls us to suffering. Now, I can't answer that question completely this morning, but we're going to start answering it. Because deep down, I believe every single one of us kind of already knows a little bit of the answer to that question. If you're a parent in the room and you have had kids, the interesting thing is you know this, that ease and comfort and privilege and power and success all the time without any struggling does not lead to a very good life. We know it doesn't. You know, ease and comfort, it can make you lazy. Privilege and wealth can make you greedy and selfish. Power and success, it can often make you corrupt or prideful. But character and commitment and generosity and love and patience and mercy and godly lives, they are built in the fire of suffering and struggling. Now, you may not hear that preached when you hear things like live your best life now, but I'm telling you that real followers of Jesus are called to something that's not easy. But you grow the best and you grow the closest to God when there's testing and trial. And that may not be the answer you want, but it's the answer the Bible gives us. The second question is this. How are followers of Jesus supposed to live in a very difficult world? How are Christians, followers of Jesus, supposed to live when the authorities or the people around them are not Christians or anti-Christian? You see, here's why I ask that question. Why did God allow these early Christians to scatter? I mean, why did he allow them to suffer? Why did he turn... Why did he allow the Roman emperors, the ruthless emperors and leaders and the Jewish leaders, why did he allow them to to persecute them and chase them and kill them and nations to attack them? Why didn't God give them success and political power? Why didn't God give them wealth and prestige? Because that would have been better for them, right? And it seems like it would have been better for Christianity to grow and flourish if God had given them power and success. Why did God give them suffering and struggle. You see, it may be the same reason that God sent a Savior to be a sacrificial lamb instead of a powerful king. You see, God seemed to have a different way to save the world than people expected. God has a different way of viewing success and power and influence. I just want to ask this question. What if our greatest calling as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is not found in power and prestige, but in suffering and serving other people? What if, what if the mission of God is accomplished best, not by grouping people together into a powerful empire, but spreading people out like fertilizer or seeds? Do you hear me? Now you may say, well, wouldn't it be best for followers of Jesus, for us, if you're a Christian in this room, wouldn't it be best for us to live in a Christian nation where, where we could be the majority and in control and make the laws? And Listen, I understand that desire, 
And Americans seem to have had that in a lot of our history in some sense for the last couple of centuries. But that's progressively not the world we live in now. And what if God planned for it to be this way? What if in our struggle, Christianity grows more than in our power and prestige? If you look back on the history of Christianity over the last 2,000 years, the church always grows the fastest and best, and the lives of Christians are the most committed to Jesus in the hardest places and times. Can you name, just for, for just, just, just do this with me for a second, can you name the country in the world where you think the, the church, the, the, the growth of Christianity is happening the fastest? Do you know what country that is? Anybody know? People say China. I, I heard the answer back over there. You're, you shouldn't answer. 